then he says there's, of course, that lovely empty bucket without holes, which I hope describes all of you. So this evening I'd like to reflect upon the, the quality of courage. And the word in Pali for this is virya. And like many Pali words, it's very much a nuanced word. It captures and enfolds qualities of perseverance, of heroism. It enfolds qualities of persistence and diligence. And it's a quality that actually gives birth to skillful effort. Courage is also about living what we love embodying our our deepest aspirations in our lives. I think courage is also very much associated with self-respect and dignity. That courage is about knowing when to say yes and equally knowing when to say no. And this quality of courage very much lies at the heart of the path of awakening. We know that to fulfill any significant quest in our lives, to bring any sense of possibility in our lives to fulfillment, that we're always being asked to call on inner resources, resources of fearlessness, of steadfastness, of dedication. And in every journey that takes us into unfamiliar territory, we probably will come to know moments of doubt, of fear and uncertainty. And as the Buddha put it when he speaks about equanimity, we stand in the midst of life, in the midst of joys and sorrows, in the midst of loss and delight. We stand in the midst of meetings and partings. And to truly stand in the midst of all of this without being broken, ask for courage, and for wakefulness. When our lives crumble or can feel unbearable, in all of the moments that we find ourselves wanting to flee or to hide, courage reminds us that our feet can still touch the ground and that we can bend without being broken. That courage points to a a refuge that we can find within ourselves. In the time that the Buddha lived in, spiritual seekers at that time were very much involved in pursuing pathways to transcend the world, pursuing pathways that involved abandoning or overcoming the body, the heart, relationships, the world itself, And these pathways of flight often took the form of asceticism or suppression. And there were many others in the world that the Buddha lived in that simply lived their lives doing their duties, being the kind of person they felt they should be or were expected to be, fulfilling the duties of their caste or their class that they were born into a life that would feel almost predetermined. So the Buddha really was very radical in his time 
in encouraging people to turn towards this life with courage. Um, to turn turn towards this life with courage in the midst of sorrow, in the the midst of, of loss and failure and the difficult, to discover that they could stand without crumbling, still being deeply touched. But the Buddha suggested that life can be more than just conforming to what others expect of us. And that each of us holds the possibility in our hearts, the seeds of very profound understanding and freedom, holds the seeds of the capacity to flourish and to thrive and to walk uncharted paths of very deep wakefulness and compassion. The Buddha was also very clear that we don't walk this path only for our own well-being and benefit but to contribute to the well-being and the benefit of all. So at one point the Buddha said, looking after yourself, one looks after others. Looking after others, one looks after oneself. How does one look after others? By looking after oneself. By practicing mindfulness, developing it and making it grow. How does one look after, one, after oneself? By looking after others. By patience, non-harming, friendliness, and caring. Everything we do or don't do makes a difference in, this, in our hearts and in the world. Everything we think and all the things that we don't consider make a difference in our hearts and in our world. And the real question is, what kind of difference do we want to make? Not just here on retreat, but in this one life that we have to live. In the Buddhist teaching, courage is spoken of as a treasure, of one of the primary supports of awakening. It's spoken of as a virtue, as something to be cultivated and practiced and embodied. And courage doesn't always come in the form of a lion's roar um, or in huge heroic acts, but in the small present moment commitments that we embody in our thoughts and our words and our acts. The poet Maya Angelou She said, courage is the most important of all virtues because without courage, you can't practice any other virtue consistently. The Buddha's teaching, as I understand it, in this path we're on, is all about engaging in small acts of courage. We don't have to wait for special moments or special opportunities. But it's really about how we live this moment, the path we walk and the choices we make. We make. Waking up, I think, for most of us <clears throat> means finding the, the courage to step out of our comfort zones, out of our habits, out of the world of familiarity that we're so prone to lean upon 
Brené Brown put it, he said, saying, you can choose courage or you can choose comfort, but you cannot choose both. This is not an easy act because we see how much our, our comfort that we so often rely upon really also relies upon feeling undisturbed. And in a world that is so agitated, in a world that's so filled with confusion and conflict and fear and mistrust, you know, being undisturbed, I think, feels like a deeply tempting prospect. Hmm? I think as we learn to to practice as we do here, as we learn to walk this path, I think one of the things that happens is that on some level we learn to welcome disturbance and to question whether our habits are truly the refuge that we want them to be. If you think about our habits, so many of our views, so much of it, many of our views about who we are may be no more than a compound of repeated psychological and emotional habit that shapes our sense of self. And habit can seem to comfort us, but it also deeply limits us and can serve to stunt our aspirations and our sense of freedom. My feeling as I explore this is that habit, whether it's behavioral or whether it's emotional or whether it's in views, seems to rely upon a degree of desensitization. It's it's interesting. You can experiment with this. It's actually really impossible to tie your shoes habitually and mindfully in the same moment. It's actually equally impossible to practice aversion and kindness in the same moment. It's also not possible to act and to speak and to think habitually and wakefully in the same moment. This to me is like a really important path to explore. And we do have choices. You know, this is one of the great gifts of mindfulness, is opening the door to choice. We have choices about what we cultivate in the midst of all events and moments. The choice about whether we rely upon comfort or upon courage. Some of you may be familiar with the quote from Viktor Frankl, expressing an insight he came to as when he was in a concentration camp. He said, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space lies our power to choose. In our power to choose lies our growth and our freedom. And that space between stimulus and response is what we increasingly cultivate in this path. We do begin to sense the ways in which our lives and our hearts open and close, (coughs) shrink or expand 
in proportion to the degree of courage that is present. The Buddhist teaching is all about learning how to thrive and how to flourish, through also learning how to bring dukkha, distress, and its origins to an end. And it likely becomes apparent to us that the places that we suffer and struggle the most most are the places where we are most unconscious and most bound by habit. You know, this path of awakening really is often presented in a rather developmental way. We begin by cultivating a climate or the conditions that incline the mind, incline the heart towards wakefulness. And that begins, those conditions begin, actually really with the commitment to integrity, to non-harming in our thoughts, our words, our acts. Because it takes such courage to step out of the habits of greed and hatred and delusion from which all harm emanates, that scars our, our heart and world, and that so patterns that shatter integrity. And I, I shared this on a retreat earlier in the year. I was, I was standing in a line in a drugstore in the town where I live a few months ago. And it was a very slow-moving line. And the woman in front of me suddenly turned to me and she said, don't you just start hating people in front of you in the queue? <laughs> and it was, it, was, it was like one of those moments, you know, where it was like my jaw kind of dropped, you know. And, and I, well, I said, well, actually, I don't. And, and, and I said, well, if you think about it, if I did that, I'd be hating you right now. <laughs> and, and she thought about this for a moment and said, oh. <laughs> you, you know, greed, hatred, and delusion, in my experience, are sadly deeply infectious. Have you noticed this? Huh? how infectious they are. It's actually heartbreaking to see in our cultures the way that greed, hatred, and delusion can become almost normalized. Hmm? Not, not appreciating the harm that is done in this incentive to, to get more, to hate more, to feel more contempt, to disdain more, to, to judge more, to accumulate more, to flounder more. And the Buddha talks so much about swimming against the tide. You know, and integrity doesn't always make us popular, but it will leave many fewer residues in our mind, in our heart, and in the world. You know, we easily think about awakening as an inside-out process. You know, that we're going to sit here and that we're going to walk here and we're going to perfect our integrity and perfect our generosity and perfect our compassion and and our courage and our kindness inwardly. And then we're going to gift them to the world and embody them in our thoughts, speech, and acts. What the Buddha proposed is actually something quite different, that transformation is sometimes an inside-out process 
and that sometimes transformation is equally an outside-in process. He said that if you want to know what generosity feels like, be generous. If you want to know what kindness feels like, act and speak kindly. If you want to know what compassion feels like, act with compassion. There's a wonderful piece from the Tibetan tradition from Patro Rinpoche's book. He says, when you hear the stories of the lives of the great teachers, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, of the of the deeds they did and the trials they went through for the Dharma. Do not be discouraged. Never think that they were only capable of achieving all they did because they were Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and that you could never do the same. Instead, remember that it was simply by acting in this way that they all became so accomplished. This is not about pretending. It's about courage. It's about honoring the commitments that we have to our most deeply, deepest values, our deepest aspirations, rather than giving authority to the most dominant mind state of the moment, or rather than giving authority to the most prominent habit of the moment. In the early years of my practice, when I lived in a, in a village of uh, Tibetan refugees, I remember feeling so puzzled by the, the generosity and the heartfulness and the compassion of these people who had been through so much, who had lost so much and who had suffered so much. And what was most startling, of course, is that These were ordinary folks, you know. They got up in the morning, they did their laundry, and they raised their kids and, you know, did their best to put food on the table. But what was also so clear is that they had the courage to live their lives guided by their deepest values without resentment, without bitterness, without brokenness. The the path of awakening, as the Buddha presents it, really rests upon this foundation of ethical commitments that we we live and embody and are the deepest expression of our commitment to treasure the well-being of all, our commitment to non-harming. And this is often outside in. When I commit to thoughts, words, and acts of kindness and generosity and integrity, In those moments, I am not practicing ill will or abandonment or greed. I'm not practicing personal gratification or withholding. What I am actually practicing is happiness and freedom rather than practicing distress and limitation. We begin to know this inwardly. The ethical commitments that this path rests upon are, it's not about rules, um, not about prescriptions. It's not about rules we make into yet another habit, but an invitation to know that we do not practice or embody the lovely and the unlovely in the same moment. We do not practice or embody the healing and the harmful in the same moment. We do not practice freedom 
or imprisonment in the same moment, simultaneously. This is an investigation, you know. It, it, it's very, really encouraging to really explore those moments when, you know, you're actually cultivating metta. Where is the ill will in those moments? It's simply not there. When you really practice generosity, really explore that. In those moments, where is the sense of withholding? It's actually not there. And it takes such courage to embody this. There's a a wonderful line in the Dhammapada, many of you will know, that it's not difficult for us to act in ways that undermine our well-being. It's far more difficult for us to live in ways that are beneficial for our well-being and the well-being of others. I really encourage you to take this as an exploration, that when the lovely is cultivated, the unlovely is abandoned. It's a process of fasting, fasting the habits of mind and body that don't serve us well. And it's a process of feeding and nurturing the intentions and the thoughts and the acts that lead to flourishing and thriving. And you know what? This is really not about what we feel. I'm going to say something here that some people will hate. But I have grave misgivings about the myth of authenticity that is so well promoted in our cultures. That if I feel good and right about something, I do it and it's authentic because I feel like it. Hmm? Um, If I don't feel good or right about something, I don't do it. And that's authentic. I feel it's a myth that keeps us imprisoned, sometimes in our comfort zones, our habits. And how many times each of you in your lives have challenged this myth anyway? Imagine if we said to you, only come in the hall if you really, really feel like it, because that's the only time it's going to be authentic, you know? You know, only go and do a walking if you really, really, really feel like it, because that's the only time it's going to be really authentic. You know? We don't say that, and actually, you, you actually don't. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of times you come in here and you don't feel like it. You know, I'm pretty sure there's lots of times you go to your walking path and you don't feel like it. But what is bringing you in here? What is taking you to your walking path? Because somehow you're not, you are challenging that myth of authenticity and actually you're honoring your deepest values, your deepest aspirations. Anyone who's ever raised a child, you ever really feel like getting up at 3 a.m.? <laughs> Great, I really feel like getting up, you know, and caring for this small child. You know, you're looking after an elderly person or someone you care about who's ill, you know, and you don't always feel like it. And you show up. Because you're honoring what you most deeply value. I think the myth of authenticity easily reifies self-views are built upon habit. And I think there's, there's significant questions and sometimes uncomfortable questions that we're invited to ask ourselves. If we truly treasure wakefulness, if we truly treasure genuine freedom, what is it that we are giving most authority to in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions and choices. Because whatever we give most authority to will govern and define our lives. 
do we find ourselves giving primary authority to our moods, to our habits, to our reactions, or to the emotion of the moment? And if we do this, it will guide our thoughts, words, actions, and choices. And it will likely guide them down pathways of familiarity and the illusory comfort. Or do we give authority to our wisest attentions, our deepest aspirations, our deepest values? And that authority is also going to guide our thoughts, our words, our acts, and our choices, and perhaps guide us to walk pathways that may not always feel comfortable, may not always be what we feel like, but will have and offer a greater sense of freedom and compassion. I really encourage you just to consider <clears throat> how this manifests in a single day. You know, I can feel a little bored, you know, so a little fantasy looks attractive, or maybe I'll just look at my phone. Or I could return to this moment, felt a felt sense of inhabiting the moment, no matter how uncomfortable. I might feel a little aversive, and I could get very busy with my judgments and building a story, or I could explore the landscape of kindness. I might, in a moment, feel somewhat discontented. So I might start looking for something that's more pleasant, something more exciting. You know, I can, there's a lot of signs to read in this building. (laughs) (coughs) And, of course, there's always the phone, which seems to be almost an answer for all hindrance attacks. (laughs) We could also explore the landscape of contentment. Really acknowledging that whatever we practice, we get better at. So at times, courage is really asking us to swim against the tide, knowing that we're always practicing something, and that whatever we practice, we will get better at. Sometimes it's just so basic as in our willingness to show up rather than abandon to step into that landscape of the unfamiliar and the unknown. In this pathway, we actually do begin by cultivating helpful rather than unhelpful habits. We learn to cultivate the habit of mindfulness, the habits of generosity, the habits of kindness. We repeat them and we naturalize them. And and we begin to notice that these, these helpful conditions that we cultivate that they're actually not builders of self-view. You know, you don't often find people saying, you know, well, you know, I'm, I'm really the most mindful person in the world. You know, I'm really the most generous person in the world. But they tend to have the effect of releasing self-view. We learn to practice habits of, of freedom that unbind us from patterns that don't serve us well. A person called Maxwell Maltz even said, your habits can be your friends or your enemies. They can help you or hurt you. Unhelpful habits turn into character. And that shapes how we see the world and how we interface with the world. Basically, 
We become what we repeatedly do. We become what we repeatedly do. From the perspective of this teaching, greed and hatred and delusion are really core unhelpful patterns or habits. That they bec- this pattern, a pattern becomes a habit when the pattern is repeated frequently. That undermines all good things, you know, the greed, hatred and delusion. They undermine respect and dignity and happiness and care and freedom. And their roots really run so deep. But they can only be unbound from in the moment of their arising. We don't actually have yesterday's ill will. You know, we don't actually have tomorrow's confusion. We only ever have what's happening right now. There's a, a very beautiful Chinese saying that says, you can't stop the birds in the air flying over your head, but you need not let them nest in your hair. <laughs> it is true that a single step on the ground does not make a trail. To make a trail, you have to walk that same step again and again. A single thought of aversion or fear or greed does not make a track in the mind. To make that track in the mind, you need to think that thought, entertain that thought, dwell upon that thought again and again. And we really do have choices about the pathways that are made in our heart. What we frequently think about and dwell upon, as the Buddha says, to this does our heart incline. In the path of awakening, this primary step of giving authority to intentions, to aspirations and to values, rather than to moods or habits or reactions, is very much a step into a freer way of being, a deeper way of caring for the well-being of ourselves and others, a deeper way of cultivating freedom of ourselves for ourselves in the world. It's not easy, but it's a practice that can only be cultivated in the moment. It takes courage not only to step out of our comfort zones, but it takes an equal amount of courage to truly embrace life's core truths without fear. Because many of our habits are really, they're seen as kind of safety zones. They're seen as protection zones. They're they're designed to camouflage many of life's core truths. They're dissociative mechanisms. As many of you have learned or are learning, it takes courage to stand in the midst of illness, in the midst of aging, in the, the midst of dying. It takes courage to stand in the midst of this troubled and difficult world. It takes courage to stand in the midst of seeing those that we love being in pain or struggling, and in courage to stand in the midst of unwelcome change. <clears throat> habit says run. You know, habit says flee. And wisdom and compassion say understand. It takes such courage to cultivate kindness and compassion in the face of ill will and harshness. And none of that ill will or harshness is changed by flight 
or by pretending. There's a wonderful poem by Mary Oliver I'd like to share with you called A Visitor. My father, for example, who was young once and blue-eyed, returns on the darkest of night to the porch and knocks wildly at the door. And if I answer, I must be prepared for his waxy face, for his lower lips swollen with bitterness. And so, for a long time, I did not answer, but slept fitfully between his hours of rapping. But finally there came the night when I rose out of my sheets and stumbled down the hall. The door fell open, and I knew I was saved and could bear him, pathetic and hollow, with even the least of his dreams frozen inside him and the meanness gone. And I greeted him and asked him into the house and lit the lamp and looked into his blank eyes, in which at last I saw what a child must love. I saw what love might have done had we loved in time. You think of how many moments life knocks wildly on our door, asking for our generosity, asking for our forgiveness, for our care, for our compassion. Stepping into the unfamiliar territory, guided by by our willingness to be present, to be awake, to be steadfast, is to step out of habit, really, into an intentional life. And this can only ever be a moment-to-moment commitment. But there's a lot in this teaching, you know, that helps us on our way. You know, thoughts and emotions and moods arise. Reactive patterns arise. Habits arise. You know, greed and hatred and confusion arise way more often than we would wish. And perhaps we can learn really to be a wise gatekeeper of our heart. In the arising of habits, of moods, of thought, we could invite them to pass through a few gates, to inquire in their arising of those thoughts, of those speech, of those impulses, We could offer them some gates to pass through. At the first gate, we could ask, is this kind? At the second gate, we could ask, is this compassionate? And at the third gate, we could ask, does this lead to a greater sense of well-being and freedom for ourselves and others? And if so, those thoughts, those are to be cultivated those words, those acts, are to be cultivated and passed through. The Buddha actually proposed some alternative gates, questions to be asked of our moods, of our habits, of our paths of reactivity, questions to be asked of our speech and our thoughts. And at the first gate, the Buddha suggested, we should ask the question, does this lead to my affliction to the affliction of others, or to the affliction of both? 
Or does this lead to the end of my affliction, the affliction of others, and the affliction of both? At the second gate, the Buddha suggested we should ask, does this obstruct wisdom, this thought, this word, this act? Does this obstruct wisdom? Does it cause difficulty for myself and for others or for both? Or does this thought or this, these words or these acts, do they lead to a greater sense of wisdom? Do they ease the difficulties of myself, of others, and both? And at the third gate, the Buddha suggested we should ask, does this lead away from freedom? Or does this lead towards freedom? We come to know what it means to be a wise gatekeeper. We come to know what it means to to learn to live in the light of these questions and know what to pass through the gates and what not to feed and entertain. And I think this does take a lot of courage and commitment and dedication and perseverance. The gatekeeper's job is really to care for our own well-being and the well-being of the world. And we see, I think we all see, that courage is, is actually not born in the most idyllic or peaceful moments of our lives. But in the moments when we feel the pull of our habits and impulses so strongly that tell us to flee and to abandon and to dissociate, when we feel the pull of, of those habits to, towards ill will or towards harshness or greed. But these are the moments that we learn to cultivate a pause. And that pause between stimulus and response is actually where the gatekeeper lives, where we can choose what kind of difference we actually wish to make in the world of the moment. It's not an easy path, but that pause offers the possibility of wakefulness, of freedom, and we begin to really sense how we hold the seeds of that care and compassion in our hands and in our hearts. So a wonderful quote from a Greek philosopher I'd like to end with. He said, The secret to happiness is freedom. And the secret to freedom is courage. Take just a moment or two to sit quietly together and then we'll have a walking period.
thank you for your attention and being that welcoming bucket. Um, We have some time now for a walking period, and then we'll be coming back at 8.45 for the last sitting of the day. It won't be a very long sitting, so I encourage you to come. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.